During the month of April, we're doing a message series really on the reasonableness of belief. And there are really four reasons why we're doing this, four things that we hope to accomplish during this month. The first is to demonstrate the truthfulness of Christianity's claims. The second is to give you confidence in your faith. Thirdly, to motivate you to live based upon the truthfulness of Christianity and also to help you in explaining your faith to others and being able to answer questions. Last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we talked about the reasonableness of believing that God raised Jesus from the dead. Because if you don't take that road, you've got to come up with another theory that's workable. Uh, this week, the subject is God. And what I want to do this morning, this is my approach, is to answer two questions. Does God exist? And second, what is God like? Now, let me begin with this. Neither you, nor I, nor anyone can prove scientifically that God exists. And neither you, nor I, nor anyone can scientifically prove that God does not exist. The discussion about the existence of God isn't really a scientific issue per se, it's a philosophical issue. I mean, we can't even scientifically prove that George Washington ever lived. Oh, there's, ev there's, there's evidence, there's historical evidence, there's philosophical evidence that he lived. But you cannot apply what is called the scientific method to establish that fact. In his book, Making Sense of God, Timothy Keller says that philosopher Stephen Evans argues that both the statement, there is no su supernatural reality beyond this world, and the statement, there is a transcendent reality beyond this world, are philosophical, not scientific propositions. Neither can be empirically proven in such a way that no rational person can doubt. To state that there is no God, or that there is a God then, necessarily entails faith. And so the declaration that science is the only arbiter of truth is, itself, is not itself a scientific finding, it's a belief. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no good arguments to be made that God exists. Uh, or, or that there's no good evidence that God exists. In fact, in the field of theistic metaphysics, there have been four traditional arguments put forth that attempt to answer the question, is it reasonable to believe that God exists? Let me just run through them quickly. One is the cosmological argument. This is the whole argument of cause-effect. Uh, and it's based upon three logically consecutive facts. Number one is that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Listen, there is no known example of something that appears out of absolute nothingness. Never. Nothing. But the second is that the universe had a beginning. I find it interesting that the prevailing view among scientists today is that the universe began in what is called the Big Bang. Stephen Hawking, who just recently died, once said, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. So, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe has a beginning. 
And thirdly then, therefore, the universe has a cause. Dr. William Lane Craig says, given that whatever begins to exist has a cause and that the universe began to exist, there must be some sort of transcendent cause for the origin of the universe. Even atheist Kai Nielsen said, suppose you suddenly hear a loud bang and you ask me what made that bang and I reply, nothing, it just happened. You would not accept that. Craig goes on, he's right, of course, and if a cause is needed for a small bang like that, then it's needed for the big bang as well. This is an inescapable conclusion, and it's a stunning confirmation of the millennia-old Judeo-Christian doctrine of creation out of nothing. Now, this argument, the cosmological argument, goes to the heart of the issue of origins, which, which brings into focus what many see as a conflict between science and religion. And so I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about this supposed conflict. There's many a young person in high school or college who has had their faith challenged or even in some cases damaged by a teacher or a professor who ridiculed anyone who would dare believe the biblical account of creation. Science, they say, has the only answers to the questions of nature, matter, and origins. Bertrand Russell was a 20th century English mathematician and philosopher. He's had a significant impact on people's thinking, really, for a century. And, and he said this, Whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific methods. And what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. And that's a philosophy that your kids or young people here are going to run into, even in high school, certainly in college. So is it true then that science has the only explanation for the origin of the universe and the origin of life? Should we consider the Bible to simply be myth? A nice story for simple-minded people. Now, this is a good place for a disclaimer. I am not a scientist, but I am a good reader and a prolific reader. Then I may not have all the answers to the questions you might have, but there are many Christian scientists who do have answers. And during the course of this morning, I'll be mentioning a couple of books that I would recommend to you that you might read to find some of those answers if you are interested in that area. So what about the conflict between science and the Bible, particularly in relation to the origin of life and the origin of the universe? Let me suggest an excellent resource for you on this. Uh, John Lennox is professor in mathematics at Oxford University. And uh, you can go to YouTube and see a lot of his debates with atheists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. Uh, but here are his academic credentials for, for some of you, if you care about those things. Uh, a master's degree, three doctorates, you know, he's got about as many letters after his name as are in my name, period. Um, but one of the books that he's written, it's a fascinating book, it's titled God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? I was okay reading it until I got into the later chapters where his mathematic explanations just buried my simple mind. But, but that might be something that appeals to you. And if you're mathematically oriented, you'd really get a kick out of his approach. But he's a delightful speaker, a, a delightful writer as well. But here's the crux of the matter related to science in the Bible. Lennox writes, there is a conflict 
a very real one. But it is not really a conflict between science and religion at all. For if that were so, elementary logic would dictate that one would find that scientists were all atheists and only non-scientists believed in God. And this is simply not the case. No, the real conflict is between two diametrically opposed world views, naturalism and theism, and they inevitably collide. Here's what we mean when we talk about those two worldviews. Perhaps naturalism can be best understood in Carl Sagan's opening words to the television series Cosmos, first broadcast on PBS in 1980. Here's what he said. The cosmos is all there is, or was, or ever shall be. That's the essence of naturalism. It's a view that believes that we live in a closed system of cause and effect. There is nothing up other than nature. And so according to this worldview, there's no such thing as anything transcendent or supernatural. God cannot exist. It does not fit into a naturalistic worldview. The opposite worldview is theism. And it starts with this premise from the book of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. The universe is not a closed system, uh, but rather it's a creation of God and a creation that is maintained and that's upheld by him. Now today, virtually all scientists believe that the universe, universe had a beginning. The disagreement is whether or not there was a creation. Listen to what Lennox writes. The Genesis statement is a statement of belief, not a statement of science. In exactly the same way as Sagan's assertion is not a statement of science, but of his personal belief. Thus, the key issue is, we repeat, not so much the relationship of the discipline of science to that of theology, but the relationship of science to the various worldviews held by scientists, in particular to naturalism and theism. What we are really asking is, which worldview does science support? Naturalism or theism? Now, we have to be honest that everyone comes to this discussion with biases, uh, with presuppositions that to a great extent inform their viewpoints and their positions. It's the filter through which they see the world. And it's also important to note the insufficiency of naturalism to explain the universe. And so that's what leads someone like Francis Collins, the former director of the Human Genome Project, now he's the director of the National Institutes for Health, to say this, science is powerless to answer questions such as, why did the universe come into being? What is the meaning of human existence? What happens after we die? Those questions, the questions of purpose, can only be answered by theism. And in particular, Christian theism as revealed in the Bible. Here's another interesting fellow, Stephen Meyer. He holds a master's degree in history and philosophy of science from Cambridge University. And then he earned his doctorate from Cambridge, analyzing the scientific and methodological issues in origin of life biology. He notes this, across a wide range of sciences, evidence has come to light in the last 50 years which taken together provides a robust case for theism, 
Only theism can provide an intellectually satisfying causal explanation for all of this evidence. Now, that may seem overwhelming when you think about it. The point is that there are answers. There are alternatives to what you are hearing out in the marketplace of ideas, which says, listen, it's a closed system. God is a myth. He doesn't exist. There's no reason to believe it. It's reasonable to believe it is. But we say it is reasonable. And there's evidence for that. Now, there are three other theistic arguments that are put forth dealing with the existence of God. I just want to mention them briefly before we move on. One is the teleological argument. And this argument focuses on order, on purpose, on design. So you look at the design of the eye and other things, and what you conclude is that it requires a designer. The intricateness, the amazing interconnection and, and working together of the different things in creation. And we assume there has to be a designer. It didn't just happen. Then there is the anthropological or moral argument. And this argument asks the question, how can a living, intelligent, moral being be explained apart from a living, intelligent, moral creator God? In other words, if we are just biological creatures, where does the sense of right and wrong come from? Why can we even make those kinds of judgments? And then there's one other one, the ontological argument, but this is really the weakest of the arguments. You'll see what I mean. It asks the question, how do you account for the existence of the idea of God? In other words, because we can conceive of God, the human mind can conceive of a God, therefore there must be a God. It's an argument, but it's is certainly the weakest of the arguments that are there. Let me suggest another great book that'll take you into much more detail on all of these things, answering the question, does God exist? It's written by Lee Strobel. And the, the title of the book is The Case for a Creator. The subtitle is A Journalist Investigates Scientific Evidence That Points Towards God. But he quotes extensively from interviews that he's done with a number of scientists across the spectrum of scientific disciplines and, and dealing with this very issue of is it reasonable to believe that there is a personal creator God? Great, great book. Now, we have to move to the second question, and that's this. If God exists, what is he like? Oh my goodness, how do we even begin to answer that question? Um, we have to admit that any explanation that we come up with has severe limitations. A.W. Tozier, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, writes of this dilemma, and he says this, When we try to imagine what God is like, we must of necessity use that which is not God as the raw material for our minds to work on. Hence, whatever we visualize God to be, he's not. For we've constructed our image out of that which he's made, and what he has made is not God. bit complicated, isn't it? But we have to acknowledge the need then that this incomprehensible God reveals himself. That he shows us what he is like. So that we're not left in the dark. Right? Maybe you just saw this article the other day that was in the paper that they've just identified uh, the remains, uh, skeletal remains found in upper Minnesota. It was a 1957 Danish hide-and-seek champion. Think, think, think. 
God, if there's this God, wouldn't it make sense that he's revealed himself? If a God made us for a purpose and made this universe, is it not reasonable that he would reveal himself and show us what he's like? His self-revelation has come in four different ways or different avenues. The first is through creation. If you have your Bible or want to grab a Bible in front of you, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1, page 1195 in the Seatback Bible. Romans chapter 1, we could go to Psalm 19, that's another good passage to go to, but I want you to see what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. God has revealed something about himself in nature, in creation. This is an external witness. So I can see creation and my mind should go to, oh, somebody must be behind this. There must be a designer to what we see. The second thing is conscience. This is an internal witness. If you're in Romans, look at chapter 2. And starting at verse 12, Paul writes, For all who have sinned without the law, he's speaking about Gentiles, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, he's talking about Jews, will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So even though conscience is not infallible, that is, it conforms to the standard to which it's exposed. Yet there is a general sense of right and wrong. There's a sense of moral accountability. So God has given testimony to himself because of that. Now, these two ways of communicating something about God fall into what we call general revelation. The purpose of general revelation is to hold people accountable. There, there's not enough information in general revelation and creation and conscience to save a person. But it's enough to point to a God who exists, a God who is there. Uh, its purpose is to witness to God, the creator, such that every man and woman is accountable to God. In the words of Paul, without excuse. In the words of the 16th century reformer John Calvin, it remains for God to give witness of himself from heaven. And that's the purpose of what we call special revelation. And this special revelation comes in two ways. One is through the written word. The second is through the living word, Jesus himself. So God has revealed himself in the scriptures. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. And we're going to talk about, is there evidence, reasonable evidence, why I should believe the scriptures, why they're trustworthy, why they're reliable? Now, in reality, we really can't separate the living word from the written word. 
Uh, Bruce Milne writes, Christ, the incarnate word, is known through the written word of God, the Bible. Knowing Christ is, of course, a richer reality than mere acquaintance with Bible teaching about him. But the Christ we know in personal experience is the Christ of the scriptural witness. There's no other Christ. Saving test response to Christ means commitment to him in terms of scripture's testimony of him. In fact, this is the point of Timothy. Uh, when Paul writes to Timothy and he says, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So the whole purpose of special revelation is redemption. It's drawing people through that knowledge into a relationship with God. The fourth, where we're going to camp for just a little bit here, the fourth avenue of God's revelation is really the most significant. It is that God has chosen to reveal what he's like in his son, in Jesus. Turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Uh, if you've got the Seatback Bible, page 1127, the fourth Gospel. And let's look what John writes as he begins this Gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. John, chapter 1. And John lays out for us, his readers, profound truth about this living word. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then as he proceeds in this introduction, he unfolds more of the identity of this word. Look down at verse 14. And that word that he just talked about became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then this amazing statement, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, let's add something that Jesus says to his disciples at the end of his earthly ministry. Turn later in John to chapter 14. Jesus is in the upper room. The night he's going to be betrayed. And he's been teaching them about servanthood and about the Holy Spirit coming, a lot of things. But notice what he says in John 14, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in, my fa in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, how is it that Jesus can say, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. Turn on in your New Testament. Let's go to the book of Hebrews, page 1275. Hebrews chapter 1. 
This one is an amazing statement that we have to just factor in here. Starting at verse 1, Hebrews 1.1. The writer says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the exact imprint. Some translation uses the word stamp. The Greek word is, is used of both a seal and the impression that that seal makes on wax. Uh, the, the impression is the exact image of the seal. And so the writer of Hebrews says Jesus is, is the very nature, the very being of God. This mirrors what Paul writes to the Colossians when speaking of Jesus. He says that he is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word there is ekon. We get our word icon from that. It means representation or exact image. Very similar to that word we just looked at in Hebrews 1. Jesus is the exact representation of what God is like. And that's why he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now the reason Jesus is the exact image of God is explained by Paul a few verses later in Colossians chapter 1 where he says, For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. Uh, you know, this testifies to the identity of Jesus. You know, he was God in the flesh. All the attributes of God that we think of God the Father are in God the Son. Now we know from Paul's writings to the Philippians that Jesus willingly set aside the exercise of his divine attributes during his earthly life and ministry so that he could come and relate to those whom he came to save. But think about this. God came to reveal God. God the Son came to show us what God is like. And only because of that could his death perfectly satisfy the justice of God. And so Jesus was raised from the dead, certifying that he had, there was victory over the grave and over death. So you see, we've got to come all the way back around to where we were last week on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus was truly raised from the dead as he said he would, then that gives credibility to every other claim that he's made recorded in Scripture. Claims which center on the fact that he is the divine Son of God, God of very God, and that he came to reveal God to us. Does God exist? What is God like? Those questions are ultimately answered in the person of Jesus in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Now, as we wrap up this morning, I just want to go back to those four reasons why we're doing the series. Let's just do a little check here. Is this helpful? Does it, does it demonstrate the truthfulness of Christianity's uh, claims? There is great evidence that, that there are great scientific minds that deal with that issue of science, religion, that help us to see the reasonableness of believing that God exists. But second is to give you confidence in your faith. You know, you don't, th this is not faith in faith. That's, that's a silly thing. Okay? We're not to close our minds and close our eyes and believe that God exists. Uh, we, we are to use our minds. We are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our what? 
minds, with our minds. And then it should motivate us to live based on the truthfulness of Christianity. When John the Apostle writes in his first epistle in the New Testament, he writes about the great hope that we have in Christ. And then he says this, so those who have such hope purify themselves. And so we live in such a way that it demonstrates our commitment to these truths that are in Scripture. Lastly, it's to help us in explaining our faith to others. So when someone says, well, there is, there's, there's no reasonable way that you ought to believe God exists. Well, yeah, there is. We can answer that question in a gracious way, and, and we can direct them to resources that will help them if they're really serious about that. Again, we can discern quickly between someone who's serious about question and someone who's just throwing up smoke screens for reasons that they just don't want to believe, and we need to sort those out. Well, let me pray, and then we're going to move into our dialogue time. Lord, thank you so much that we have these truths to think about. More than anything else, we have the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that just so solidifies the basis upon which we believe all these other things, that you came to show us what God is like because you are God in the flesh. And so, once again, we are mindful of the great truth of the resurrection. Lord, would these truths change the way we live this week, that we might have the confidence in our lives because of your truth to live in a way that pleases you. And so we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.